Hi, everyone. Welcome to Frontier Faith, a podcast where it's okay not to know, not to know what you believe or why you believe it. What is important to know is that you are not alone, that you are going on a similar journey as many who have inherited the church as we have here on this podcast. My name is Nathan Whitaker. My name is Ryan Harris. And today we're going to talk about a few things that uh, we believe may have potential for a full episode, but not at this time. You know, as you make a podcast, you think about all the different topics that you want to talk about. Some are more important than others and some fit together and so forth. And some you you don't know enough about to really talk about intelligently. I mean, I know that doesn't stop some people, but we try to be careful. (laughs) Yeah. And so we've got some on the back burner that we still need to read about. There are some that we want to talk about, but today we want to kind of clear the slate a little bit of those things that we think are important enough to bring up but not designed for a full episode at this point. And Ryan and I both have a couple things that we thought we'd just explore with you. We don't know how long this episode's going to be. It might be a shorter Seven episode. hours. <laughs> but it won't. It might not be the full hour and a half or so, 75 minutes that we typically have an episode. So Ryan, what's the first thing that you would like to, you know, for us to talk about? Well, right out of the gate, we'll start with an easy one. <laughs> so... The, the thing that has come up for me recently, partly it made me think about it recently. It's been a thing for a long time. Um, is this what I, I don't know if there's a totally like correct term, but what I call it is evangelical Zionism. And what I mean by that is um, this almost, no, I think this pathological support for the state of modern state of Israel in every possible way. Um, this, was something that would come up in church sometimes. Um, but it wasn't something that like, I don't remember a lot of, if any sermons on how the modern state of Israel is anything, but I do remember it would come up every once in a while, um, as kind of like an aside or when talking about prophecy, uh, or one that it came up a lot with was any of the, um, premillennial rapture dispensational mm. stuff because mm. uh, the state of Israel being reestablished was thought of as a, a precursor to the end times, you know? Um, and I remember hearing people now, again, I don't remember who, I don't think this was in a sermon, but I remember hearing stories about like in the, in the sixties, there was the five day war or whatever it was called when, four or five different Arab countries invaded Israel, you know, and Mm -hmm. they lost. In fact, I believe they lost rather handily. But I remember hearing them telling things like there were stories that uh, they talked about some of the soldiers from these other nations running because they saw angels with flaming swords and and kind of stuff. (laughs) And I'm going to go out on a limb and suspect that those are, well, the kind way to say it would be apocryphal. (laughs) Um, But this idea that not just so there was the prophecy piece, but it's also to the point of like Israel, the state of Israel. I'm not talking about Jewish people. I'm talking about the modern state of Israel can do no wrong. Um, It is they are God's chosen people, but only sort of because they don't know Jesus, but they are, but they aren't, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But that um, they can it doesn't matter what they do because they are right. 
and everybody else that does bad things to them are terrorists or Muslims, which often was the same thing, you know, in how they would say it, I mean. Hmm. Um, and so I don't, I don't know enough about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to talk about that a lot. I know that it's very complicated. <laughs> um, but I also know that Israel has done some pretty terrible things to Palestinian people, like stolen land, uh, you know, built walls through people's neighborhoods, um, not to mention things when people were killed or imprisoned or this kind of stuff. And um, which is not to say things haven't happened to them that were bad. They There are, you know, terrorist things. They fire missiles into Israel, like all of it. And I don't really want to talk about the details of that because I don't know. But I think what was very strange is the fact that that this idea that, uh, you know, Israel can do no wrong regardless, even when they're doing blatant human rights violations to Palestinians, many of whom are Christians, by the way. Um, and yet that never seemed to matter because Israel. So I don't know if that was ever something that came up for you, but that was something that's very much a big part of evangelical culture. Like even to the point of some churches, not mine never did, but you'll see them have like Israeli flags in, in their building somewhere, you know? Yeah. Really? Sometimes. Now, again, like, again, none of mine did, but it, it was a thing. Yeah. I don't think... Lutheranism is pretty big, so there might be uh, there might be some people who have had pastors that push in on this, but I would say theologically we don't have that, of course, because we don't believe in the end times the way that you do, um, and much of evangelicalism does. So mm -hmm. we're not waiting for. Uh, well, we're not trying to solve the puzzle of making Jesus come back. Right. Or try working to make it happen quicker. Yeah. Like, like, you know, I, I say we, but they, whatever people yeah. in that world are. But we do have, and I always thought it was strange because I didn't grow up with that. So we, I never really heard about Israel all that much. Um, and the times I did were from evangelical people mm -hmm. that I knew. Uh, and so it always struck me odd when some pastor or some Christian was trying to make that a thing, especially in the Lutheran world. What I've come to find out is, um, you know, of course, because evangelicalism in, in my lifetime has bled into a political movement more and more um, and become kind of synonymous with conservatism in the United States, I think what was happening is people were letting conservative politics come into the church and then it would become something they'd talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So we did, we, I mean, some of those hallmarks were there, like Israel can't do any wrong. Certainly the, the, um, not Zionism, what's the, the, the xenophobia mm -hmm. and the anti-Muslim rhetoric, especially mm -hmm. around 9-11 and, and thereafter, all of that seems very common and fits really well into that Zionism. Um, but I have to say, like, outside of that, the only other interaction we had with it was theologically we were told that it was stupid to plan the end times like you folks did um, mm -hmm. or not you specifically, yeah. but you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
And I kind of felt it when I was the asshole person that I was in seminary. I kind of found it humorous to listen to in St. Well, Louis. Some of it they, is pretty humorous. <laughs> so the, in St. Louis, they had this uh, bot radio network, uh, which I'm sure some of the people are familiar with. And um, they had this show whenever I would drive out to see someone for some program I was part of. Um, and they were like dissecting the new news about mm-hmm. the end times and how this was pulling And it was just, it was weird because it was this giant commercial to sell their stuff, mm-hmm. which we've talked about in your end times episode. Yeah. But also it was just all very fascinating to be able to watch them do something that, you know, an arrogant Lutheran like myself would say is meaningless and just like, Hey, you're putting all this energy into something that doesn't matter at all. Uh, yeah. I mean, I remember I have a friend who is part of the Orthodox Church, and I remember him saying one time he has like a an uncle or a relative who I think was an evangelical pastor of some sort. And he was at this guy's church or something. And this guy in his church, they would like blow shofars and, and have all this kind of stuff, you know, and very much like it, it, in a way it almost serves as like a church tradition magisterium type thing, not in how it functions, but in the feelings it evokes, you know, it's Mm. like tying uh, us to all the way back to, well, you know, from the very beginning. And, and I remember him saying, but why would they do that when they've got that in the church and all that? And I was like, (laughs) yeah, you just don't understand. I mean, you're not (laughs) wrong, but you just don't get it right. Like that is not how any of this works. Um, And so like, I think, I think there's, and, you know, the other funny part is that the Israelis figured this out, right? So they make all kinds of money mm-hmm. from tourism, or at least they did when, you know, before the yeah. world went to hell. But um, and uh, they leverage it for political support from America. I mean, like they're not they certainly ain't dumb. That's for sure. Yeah, they they right. got, got us figured out. So, yeah, I mean, the, there's more that could be said. But honestly, the problematic parts are the. um uh, just the way that this focus on um, theoretical prophecy and Bible code type nonsense and, um, well, you know, they have a tank that's called the chariot. And so if it's a chariot, well, now all of a sudden all these script, you know, like this kind of nonsense, right? I remember <laughs> yeah. I, I remember when that was a thing and I was like, whoa, you know, and it was just yeah. like, no, that's just, I mean it's just a thing, you know, Yeah, (laughs) it probably sounds cool in Hebrew. That's probably why they did it, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think the problem is like being so fascinated with that kind of stuff and the problems that leads to with Bible code type nonsense, um, to the charts and graphs of revelation to, um, but more seriously are the problems of vocally supporting, um, or ignoring, uh, like, murder and pros- or persecution and um, racism and all this kind of stuff, you know? And yeah, I, I just, I, I, I get it. Like I understand intellectually where it comes from, but I don't get it because it should be wrong whoever they're doing it to, but it mm-hmm. seems it is wrong. Whoever they would, anyone would be doing it to, but especially since so many of these people that it's being done to are Christians. Um, you'd think that Christians would be like, Hey, not okay. It reminds me a lot like of like you said this in the opening as well of this topic. It and we're not promised not going to do this every single time we talk about this kind of stuff, but it, you know that freedom 
uh, from responsibility feels a lot like what we've experienced through Trump is as long as we get something out of it, as long as there's something that is really important for the end times, for our religious liberty, that would be the Trump angle, um, then we're going to pretty much allow anything, and it did seem like anything, up to an insurrection to allow mm-hmm. anything to happen. And so I, I, can't, I can't help but see the connections there, especially because these are the same kinds of folks that right. voted for him. Well, yeah. And, you know, the average person does not know anything about the history and the conflict. And, you know, other than a very, very, very surface knowledge, that includes me, right? So um, in the sense that, like, they're told these things, the average person in, in an evangelical church who hears this is going to be on board because they don't know. Now, that doesn't make it okay because they should find out, right? Um, but I think it's more, the problem for me is more with uh, pastors and leaders who promote this kind of stuff because they, of if nobody else, they have the responsibility to vet that kind of thing because it's up to them yeah. to to, you know, filter that and what is and isn't appropriate to teach people and that kind of stuff. And then there are the, um, you know, honestly, grifters and con men or women who are using it to make money. Um, And I'm not talking about the state of Israel. I'm talking about people here. Right. Um, So, yeah, like I, um, it's a very complicated thing. And unlike Jared Kushner, who read 25 books on the subject, (laughs) jeez. You've read none, huh? I've not read any, you know, so I'm not an expert like like Jared. But um, I guess it's just another example of the dangers of ignorance and manipulation from people who not only should know better, but um, who have entirely, I can't think of the right word, but who don't want to take any responsibility for these things. Like I said, I know we say this all the time, but, and I won't belabor it, but that whole teachers being held to a higher standard, Mm -hmm. this is the kind of thing I think it's talking about, you know, at the very least you should say, well, we need to find out more before we say something or do something because like, it's not just that churches say these things. Evangelical churches spend a lot of money giving it to Israel in some fashion or another, whether that's through ministries or whatever. But I mean, it's a, it's a lot and far more than they spend on helping the poor, you know, that kind of thing. So deeply problematic. And um, yeah, I don't know what, I don't know how to fix it (laughs) other than to say, stop it. Um, But yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a big deal. It's a problem. So the, I guess the question I would have is, if there is something you can do that we can do to maybe not fix it, but move in the right direction, move in a more positive direction, what do you think that would be? Well, I guess one relatively easy thing to do, easy and also hard, but is that all of us could benefit from knowing more about what's actually going on in the history and and all of that kind of stuff. And I, you know, even though I said a lot of things that were critical of Israel, like I said before, it's not to say that bad things haven't and aren't being done to them too. They are. But before we make grand pronouncements, certainly from pulpits or teachings or whatever, we need more information. And we should not be afraid to say, hey, this is a complex situation and we should pray for everybody, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, that that kind of thing. Um, 
because one, there's no way more information can really hurt. And two, I think it, you know, I think if we knew more about, like if, if we heard stories from some of these people who have had these things done to them, you know, their land was stolen, they were put in prison, they were, you know, whatever it was, I think that might change the perspective on like, hey, this isn't, there is no immunity for anybody here. Um, and I, so, yeah, I, I, the only thing I can think of at this point is other than, you know, engaging it carefully when it comes up in conversation is we could mm-hmm. all benefit from, you don't have to read 25 books like Jared did, <laughs> but like, honestly, just having a little more info would be helpful. Yeah. And I'm sorry. I'm not, I just, that, that joke, it really gets me because this guy, this, this guy who's I think younger than me, or at least my age was going to solve Mideast piece that nobody's been able to solve. And he's going to do it by reading 25 books. Okay. I'm done. Sorry. Yeah. It just, Oh boy. <laughs> What I like about that answer is uh, I can really latch on to that because it's something that we need a lot too, like in the grander scheme of things, which would be cognitive humility is mm-hmm. just recognizing that we don't know and how empowering is it to say, I don't know. Like yeah. uh, Israel has gone through what, five or six elections for this past Gosh, time. It's a mess. Yeah. It's a mess there. And I, I, <laughs> I listen to the news stories and I try to read into it and I just don't, I don't get it because yeah. it's so detached from the way we do elections, not to mention all the history and everything else around well, there's, there. There's like ethnic parties and I think right? Israel is an ethnic ethnically Jewish state. So, I mean, like there's all kinds of stuff that we, that, and so, you know what, you don't even have to read a book if that's not your thing. Like I said, find stories of people who live there from Mm -hmm. Israel and Palestine or whatever. And, and like, if you're not one, if you don't want to write a research paper, fine, but there are ways you can access people's stories and testimonies if you like. Um, And uh, just find ways to expose ourselves to more information and then, like we've done a lot. So how about we back up from doing anything for a little bit um, to make sure we know what can actually help if anything. Yeah. Cause it might be that maybe we're not the ones to help, you know, just the thought mm-hmm. maybe we are, I don't know. I just, I let's, let's do a little more research in whatever form that takes. Yeah. All right. So now that I have um, very eloquent, eloquently, I can't even say the word, solved <laughs> the problem of evangelical Zionism, <laughs> what would we like to talk about next, Nate? <laughs> well, this is something that's true for a lot of church bodies, but is a major argument within Lutheran circles, especially conservative Lutheran sc- circles, and that would be uh, the issue of closed communion. Mm-hmm. And basically, closed communion is something that uh, it's actually quite simple. It's just code for uh, we're not going to let anyone who's not Lutheran or. um, Well, your specific brand of our specific Lutheran uh, depends on the the, person and the pastor in the church. But certainly. um, Well, and let me finish the thought. (laughs) Anyone who's not Lutheran cannot be uh, admitted to the Lord's table for Holy Communion. Um, the The classic way that our seminaries pose this question is, what if a Catholic comes and wants to uh, have Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper at your table? Horrors. Um, 
Yeah, well, it makes sense because um, the Catholics, uh, there are a lot of Lutherans that are married to Catholics because mm-hmm. liturgically we're so close. And frankly, in, in my congregation, I think every congregation that uh, friends that I know, they have that exact situation. They have spouses that come to both worship services. Mm-hmm. It's kind of arrangement they set up. And um, they actually receive communion most of the time at both uh, worship services, uh, right. both couple or both parts of the couple do. Um, and so the classic question is, is you find out that this guy or gal is Catholic. Do you continue to admit them to the Lord's table? And the answer they want you to say is no, because they're not Lutheran. Well, and so why, okay, but what's, I mean, why is that? Why do they, what's the problem there? Yeah. So there are two, basic problems with it. The first is it's protecting the integrity of the Lord's Supper. Whatever that um, means. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not quite sure what it means. I mean, I think I know what they mean, but yeah. Yeah, the, I think what they mean is uh, this w- other word comes out a lot, cheap grace. Um, and so when you just give people the Lord's Supper without instruction, um, then they don't really know what they're receiving and they're not uh, valuing the Lord's Supper uh, as much as they should. It is a means of grace for you, right? It is a means of grace. So yeah. that's another thing. And I, I really love the idea of means of grace. It's different ways that God gives in, in liturgy and the life of worship of how he demonstrates and actually gives his forgiveness and his grace to us. Um, but we have this idea of closed communion in order to protect one of those means of grace um, from people who may not really understand what's going on. Is it based on the, uh, where Paul says, um, you know, taking in an unworthy manner, that part in Corinthians? Yeah, right. So that's the other one. Uh, That's the first one is making sure that we're not having people take it in another worthy manner. So there's a lot of like weird theology around that too of, Hey, you could be having them drink damnation upon themselves or. Which is sort of, I mean, that, I, that is sort of what he says, Paul. I it mean, is what he says, but I don't but not think what he says. context. Yeah. I think the context is excluding people. Yeah. But I mean, the words themselves, I, it's not like a, how did they get there? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Although at the same time, how did they get there? Yeah, exactly. So the first reason is that unworthy and making sure that things are protected, especially through instruction. Instruction is a big one. And of course, Lutherans love to be able to instruct things and delineate everything. And so Rules, we, right? Yeah. Uh, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before communion, or I'm sorry, confirmation, which is the preparation for communion for younger adults or really teenagers, not younger adults is to highlight what communion is not more than what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that people don't think that they're actually eating Jesus's body and blood, um, uh, yes. in the Catholic way. Or they're not doing the symbol thing where they think it just symbolizes. <laughs> the symbol thing. Yeah. <laughs> because we we want to make sure, I'm going to say this tongue in cheek, but we want to make sure that they're thoroughly confused that the body and blood are in, with, and under. The yeah, whatever in the world that means. <laughs> I've never gotten a good answer. I mean, like, I... It's, it's well, you're not, not going to get a good I answer. I know, there isn't one, right? It's not right. the body of Jesus, literally. But, you know, the Lord is present 
in all of the prepositions that yeah, we can think right. of. And then some, maybe some in German do because you're you guys, um, you know, it's just like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and I know like, I remember cause we were in one of our first classes together and I think it was the liturgy class and there was a discussion about the Lord's supper, which happened. Oh, on days that ended in Y. And um, I remember one of the things that the professor said was he spent a, a while talking about how the Lord's Supper is about hospitality, right? And, you know, people, well, I don't know what he's, but the idea that it's for welcoming people to the Lord's table. And me being me, I said, well, then how come I can't come? <laughs> you know, how come I can't take communion? And, and there's not, I mean, there were answers for it. And, um, I get why within the system they were given, mm -hmm. right? But I have to say, um, if you have closed communion, then you probably shouldn't say it's about hospitality um, for anybody, not just you. I mean, like, right. you'd have to at least qualify it somehow. It's for hospitality between ourselves or our mm -hmm. community or something. Um, but anyway, so it's just, uh, yeah, so, yeah. So what do you make of that? Well, let me say the second reason, because we haven't talked about that yet. The second reason that we do this outside of the protecting the Lord's Supper is kind of in tune with the hospitality. I think this is probably where the professor started, which, by the way, we both love that professor. Oh, yeah. and he was very open to hearing that and talking about that. Well, and hey, you you all do what you want. I just I remember <laughs> being in class being like, well, I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> well, the other one is community building. And uh, so this is really important because of the other part of this conversation. But for closed communion, it's about building the community of God in that place. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, they want to make sure that they're communing people within that community um, to build them up and to give them yeah. the means of grace and so forth. And so well, what you'll notice is more sense to me. Yeah, it yeah. does. And, but you'll see a lot of fluctuation. Like you'll see people talk about that because that seems to be more like I'm okay with that argument really uh, without many caveats because, mm -hmm. yeah, the Lord's Supper is meant to build community around the means of grace. Um, but then once you start to ask questions because hospita hospitality then comes in, um, then it's like, well, we also have to protect it so that it does its job to be able to. Oh, because it needs us to community. do that. Huh? Right. Yeah. So I, yeah, I'm not trying to make fun. I promise. I just I think it was it's just so interesting to me, you know, yeah. because like um, I, I think I'm on board, too, with building community within a specific community and how the Lord's Supper could function that way. And, you know, if that was the only reason I'd be like, great. Do yeah. what you want, you know, right. I mean, I do what you want anyway. No one's going to change because of my opinion, regardless. <laughs> um, but I think it just, it uh, runs into some, for as an outsider, it ran into some issues where I'm just like, well, this, not just, and I don't just mean an intellectual, and I wasn't offended, right? It's not like I was like, oh, yeah. they wouldn't let me take communion. It was more like, I just, um, it's like I both understand and don't understand. Right. Right. I understand why it functions that way and I get it. And at the same time, it's it just puts a lot awful lot of responsibility on on us. Well, yeah. You yeah. know, you I mean, the, the people doing whatever it is on, on people. Yeah. So they, they notice this like weird 
maybe even oxymoron or certainly tension between all of this. And so what started to become more of a common phrase was not closed with a D communion, but close uh, without the D communion. Mm -hmm. And what that was meant to do and still continues to do is emphasize the second of those two options rather than the first. So closed communion focuses on the instruction and making sure that we're protecting and honoring the Lord's Supper. Close communion focuses more on making sure that we're together as a community doing that. Um, But of course, it's kind of like this weird thing where it's a magic trick, right? You're looking Mm -hmm. at one hand and the other hand's doing other stuff. It's kind of a bait and switch. Yeah, yeah, it's a bait and switch. They don't tell you that in order to be part of that community, you have to become a fully fledged Lutheran of a certain stripe. See, that's the thing. Like if I moved to uh, a town and I went to that kind of church every week, I still wouldn't be able to do it unless I also did all the other things. Right. right? And yeah. and I mean, like I said, that's not unique to you folks. I mean, right. lots of people do that. And even like in, in ours growing up, there was an element of that, but it was more of like if you're welcome to take a, you know, take the Lord's Supper as long as you are a Christian is usually like if you believe in Jesus, I think is what we would say, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, but it's also not functioning the same way for us. Like it's not a means of grace, in which right. case I think that lends itself to more. I don't want to say laxness because that's that's a little too much, but um, there's not as many issues with that when it is functioning mm-hmm. as uh, the symbol stuff. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, as there would be for the way you view it, you guys view it. Yeah. Yeah. So the opposite of all this, of course, would be probably what you are practicing, which would be open communion Mm -hmm. and open communion has some caveats, of course, like being a Christian is usually one. Although the church I'm at now doesn't, doesn't even say that. I think they say you don't have to be a member of this church or any church. You're welcome. Okay. I think that is all they say. Fully open communion. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And so again, we don't have uh, we don't have a fullness to this to be able to make it a whole episode. But it is interesting to me that the fear behind open communion is uh, a moral fear. Is a fear that the pastor. It, it's really from a pastor and leadership perspective that the pastor is um, not being a good leader, not being a good Christian, not being a good pastor, by letting people in to the Lord's Supper that he is not or she is not aware of um, doing. Yeah, she is kind of touchy, but... um, (laughs) Well, yeah. Um, I'm curious, does it have any element of like... like sin. And what I mean by that is the other thing that would come up for us sometimes is they would talk about how if you are, you know, yeah, I don't know where I would have put it, but if you have sin in your life is how they would say it, you shouldn't take communion. Um, is there any element of that? With we your- say, yeah, like Paul was say, if you don't, if you have something against your brother or, or sister, you know, we'd add that part. Of course, nobody um, checked. You know, I don't know how you would. Well, even yeah. How do you that. check that? Unless you're Catholic um, and you require confession before you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we do have that element. I think with open communion, the real fear is that non-believers will take communion. Um, I don't know. I kind of like, so you asked what I thought and I have to be careful, not because it says where I am. I'm just still kind of thinking this through, but, uh, open communion doesn't seem as big of a threat as I would 
that most make it out to be. I don't know many people who go to a church for the first time or whatever as a there, there was somebody actually in my congregation when I first got there. He's he was he is an atheist. He never came up. He doesn't right. care. He doesn't want to do it. Um, right. Do you get people occasionally that get confused and, you know, or whatever, excited? And yeah, sure. Absolutely. Is it common? No. Does the one person who does that, uh, who has communion in that light, does that mean that the pastor and the whole congregation Damn. is going to hell? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so. I hope not. <laughs> But I think for me, the reason why I just wanted to briefly touch on this is because there is that beautiful part of this, and I wish that we would just focus on this and bring it out, which is God works in such a way through the Lord's Supper to empower and build up a local community of Christ. And for him to give a gift like that is just, I think that's awe-inspiring. I think that's wonderful. Yeah. And one of the things that my heritage as a Lutheran really builds out is this sacramental idea of God working through the sacraments within us in an intimate way that, um, you know, if we focused on that instead of trying to protect it, which is all built around moral fear, mm-hmm. then we'd probably have something akin to close communion that wouldn't be as exclusionary and wouldn't have the problematic images. I mean, I don't know what that looks like, but yeah, I I will say as an, an outsider, quote unquote, um, the idea being presented as, you know, this is for building community within our own community is not as offensive isn't the right word. Cause honestly, I wasn't offended, (laughs) Um, but it's not as, yeah, it's not as off putting as, well, you don't believe the right shit, so no, you're out of luck, right? Yeah. Um, I think well, because that- it feels very judgy. I think the the interaction I've had with people who couldn't have communion in a Lutheran church, they always say, "Well, you know, I'm not really offended by it, but it does feel like you're judging us a bit." I mean, honestly, this is going to sound bad. Maybe it's bad. I don't know. To me, it was more kind of quaint feeling, and that's oh, probably yeah. condescending, but it's just like this idea of that's like, okay. okay, I mean. <laughs> all right, you know, like, I'm glad you believe in your beliefs. But you know, I just look at and not just with you, I mean, with people with a lot of those kinds of things, you know, it's like when the you'll hear a Roman Catholic or the doctrine of the church, which teaches that they're the only real church, and I just kind of roll my eyes, you know. Um, And I get that. Yeah, yeah. that feeling of Okay. Yeah, it's I like mean, you can believe that. That's fine. But yeah. you know, you'll go to heaven and you'll see Lutherans there and exactly. you'll see Baptists there. You know, and- it's it's like when I was TAing for that class and someone in one of the students very magnanimously said, Well, I believe that other denominations get to go to heaven too. <laughs> and I said, Well, we're glad to hear it. You know, like it's 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 that feeling of like, yeah. okay, you know, all right. Yeah. And like I said, I don't mean to mock because well, maybe just a tiny bit, but I mean, that's not really my point. My point more is of like, I don't, like I, like I said earlier, I understand I do. And I think I appreciate the tension that comes from wrestling with those things. And I'm all for that for everybody with, with things. That's the kind Mm -hmm. of thing I think theology should cause us to do that kind of wrestling. Yeah. But the exclusionary stuff is the part where I just, like I said, I go, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's closed communion. So we've talked about 
Zionism and closed <laughs> communions, very, very niche things. Uh, let's, uh, what's, uh, what else is on our docket for today? Well, continuing our, um, theological roller coaster here today, um, our greatest hits, you might say this is our greatest hits album. <laughs> <laughs> um, the one that it, perhaps, I don't know if it's as serious, it's different. It's maybe a little more, um, not quite as, it seems more individual to me than the, these other two that we've talked about. And this is just the idea that God provides, okay? Um, Are you saying he doesn't? I am saying that God doesn't give two shit. No, I, I no, of course not. Like, I do believe that God provides. You find it all over scripture. I think most of us, certainly I do, but most of us in our lives find places where it sure seems like God must have provided because otherwise we don't know where some of this stuff comes comes from, right? You know, you don't have money for something and somehow it works out or you get a promotion in a job you shouldn't have, you know, whatever it is, or you end up in a church that in, you know, metaphorically or literally saves your life somehow. And, you know, you just ended up there like this kind of thing, this idea that, um, like Jesus says, you know, look at the sparrow, they're not worried, you know, and if God takes care of the sparrow, of course, God's going to take care of your needs kind of thing. Don't worry about what you'll eat and what you'll wear, this idea. And so I'm not, I've not decided and don't expect to ever decide that God does not provide. I think the questions that have come up for me lately, just because I hadn't really thought about them this way before, is yes, but the question is, but why does God provide for me or you or whoever and not everybody, right? And I know, like, in the sense of, like, so I, about six months, well, about eight, nine months ago now, I lost my job, and I prayed a lot to find the right one, and I found a better one, you know, and I really do think God provided that for me. But why did God provide a job for me and not the other however many million people are still out of work, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it just, it makes me wonder, not necessarily, I'm not trying to say that God didn't, but what I'm trying to say is, is it possible that sometimes, and I think the answer is yes, but is it possible that sometimes we've confused God providing with privilege, mm-hmm. right? Like in my case, I'm a, um, you know, I'm a white guy, so that makes a big difference, unfortunately, but it does. But also, like, if I had run out of money, I have resources in family and such and others that I I was never worried of being homeless or not having enough food to eat, right? I never would have wanted to ask people for that kind of help, but I could have. And mm-hmm. so it's just, it's it's a difficult thing for me to, to wrestle with of like, yeah, I believe God provides, but I don't know. It sure also seems like God doesn't provide. Yeah. I, I, I experience this all the time, this weird, like, I, I'm trying to figure out myself, too. Um, <laughs> like, I'll hear a story, and I'm listening to this story, and I'm just thinking to myself, uh, well, let me say, the end of this story is always like, hey, and God was with me. Yeah, he was, and God provided for me, and mm-hmm. I'm thinking to myself, well... <laughs> Uh, well, you had the skills to be able to do what needed to be done. You right. had the connections to be Education, able to do Education, family, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I know like the counter to that would be, well, some of those things I don't get to choose. And I think I love the way that you said that is, well, maybe that's privilege more than it is God 
um, placing you in a certain time and place. Which I suppose you could say privilege is a kind of provision, but that leads to some uncomfortable questions yeah, of not... why do you like that doesn't that doesn't seem to work. Right. Well, um, especially if all you're going to do is like say that God provides instead of having some justice angle to that. Mm-hmm. Maybe God's providing so that you help others who he's not providing. No, that for couldn't be it. That couldn't be it. But yeah, I do get uncomfortable with that, mm-hmm. especially when it does when it gets into hyper spirituality. Um, so that's another part of it. Uh, and I don't want to derail you, but it does seem like a lot of times it's God is uh, like this puppet master orchestrator mm-hmm. of everything. Mm-hmm. And yep. like, no, dude, uh, you just happened to be walking down the street. And so did this other person or whatever it is, yeah. you know. There's it, not it, a lot of place for coincidence in in conservative no, theology no. <laughs> or just, you know, uh, serendipity or random chance or, or you know, like, um, like we talked about whether it was we talked about death or whatever, like people need a reason for things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm convinced that some things do not have a reason other than yeah. natural causality, uh, probability, chance, whatever, you know, now. That's not to say that I don't think God does these things because I do think God does these things for people, whatever they are. Like, I I still do believe that when Jesus said, you know, if the sparrows don't worry, how much more should you not worry that God will provide? Okay, like I I take Jesus seriously there. And I recognize that the world is broken, right? Mm -hmm. Although, side note, that should not be used as the way to say, so God provides for me and too bad for all the other folks. Right, yeah. because I think you are. Let me go build my three million dollar house. Right, exactly. You know, and I think you probably are onto something. Is maybe part of it. It doesn't answer it entirely for me, but maybe part of it is that. Well, then, if God's providing for me somehow, I should be helping other people because I really do think one of, if not God's primary way of interacting in the world is through people. Mm-hmm. Um, not the only, but it seems to be God's preference. Uh, at least as far as the things that we can see that God does. Um, And so like, yeah, I think that is an important part that I think, I mean, I'm not saying nobody ever said that. I'm not saying nobody said help people. Of course they said help people, but I don't remember, it could have been, but I don't remember it being tied explicitly to, well, if God has provided for you, pass it on. I mean, it's probably not fair. I mean, somebody probably did say that, but Honestly, I remember hearing that idea a lot about money in the sense of if God's been generous to you, um, give the church lots of money. (laughs) Although, (laughs) you know, in in the last church I was at, I do remember them saying that if God has blessed you, it's so that you can be generous to other people. And they never used it as a way to say, give us money, you know. So anyway, um, yeah, I'm not trying to say to reiterate that God doesn't provide, but I think we do ourselves and if you can say this, God a disservice when we assume that everything is God's provision, especially when it's more likely that it's privilege, you know? Yeah. Like my family's not rich, but they are well off enough that I was never in danger. Yeah. You know. What does that mean if someone is in the same situation and they have no family or no right. relationship with their family and they're not white men and, you know, on and on. And um, so, yeah, I, I guess we already kind of sort of said what could what, you know, a part of well, what should we do with this is that, well, if you think God's providing, then 
you know, pass it on. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was interesting is, uh, so I'm preaching on the Bible as we're reading through it, and we've been on Psalms for this past this week and the last week, and there'll be two more instances where in the Psalms, because, you know, it's a big book. <laughs> yeah, um, moderate and, size. And... Uh, the there was this book that uh, Matt Waite, who was on our last week's podcast, he recommended, which was uh, Spirituality of the Psalms by Walter Brueggemann. And so I picked it up because, hey, we're preaching on it. And I started reading it. And he actually highlights one area of the Psalms, which is or one one uh, season of life that the Psalms speak into, which is that of what he calls orientation. And he talks about how it orients us around God's provision, his protection, his grace, mercy, and love. And he even recognizes, and I was really scared when I first read this, but then he started recognizing that, um, you know, this gets tricky in places of privilege because uh, some of you will have the wealth to be able to say that God has provided for you no matter what, um, whereas others may not feel that way. And, and how do you grapple through that? Uh, he leaves that, of course, for a later section on justice, which I haven't read yet. But I love that idea of at least, like for me, if there was a way forward, would be to pause and just reflect on the reality of privilege and reality that, um, especially those who are listening to this podcast and within our circles, would be more likely to be privileged than to have some supernatural provision given to at them. least at least a lot more than we than I was I had ever thought or was taught to think you know yeah. um, but you're right I I think sometimes it's just serendipity or is that the right word you know just like good luck basically yeah, or, or, chance yeah or, you know like I think sometimes or... yeah I think sometimes it's just that and. I want to echo what you said is so when you feel like God's provided great, say, thanks God. And then examine how does privilege mm -hmm. affect this too? Yeah. You know, um, and that doesn't mean you have to, you know, send it back to God. You don't have to return it. I don't even know what that means in, in the sense, <laughs> other than maybe you do have to return some of it. Like we talked about to other people yeah, or, right. you know, Paid forward as you said, and not just with money, although that's probably a big one, but with, Oh, with you know, time and time, energy and effort, yeah, uh, and all kinds of stuff. It could be relationships that you form, yeah. like all kinds of stuff of uh, helping other people. So there you go. You heard it here first. God doesn't care about you. It's all it's all <laughs> random chance. <laughs> all right. Well, continuing the shotgun blast here. Although I think this is the last one we're going to look at. It is. I'm not going to lead into it because this is such a unique thing for you folks. So I'm just going to say, Nate, what are we talking about next and probably last today? Yeah. So we're kind of doing a meta thing here, even though uh, uh, we're so meta, really Lutheran. So what we've been doing in this podcast is we've been talking about uh, what some Lutherans would call adiaphora. Adiaphora is a Greek word that means indifferent uh, and extraneous and just outside. And Lutherans will use this word more than any other sect, I think, in the world. Uh, I was, I'm remembering one of those early classes. I don't remember which one, but this word kept was getting thrown around in a discussion for like 15 minutes. And I'm just kind of sitting there, like <laughs> ping-ponging my head between the speakers and being like, I don't know what the hell we're talking about yeah. here. <laughs> And I couldn't spell it, so I couldn't Google it either. 
it's such a Lutheran pastor theologian thing too, because unless you've had a pastor that talks this way or you're in, in Lutheran circles uh, that have theological education, you know, mo- if I were to say Adiaphora at any congregation, 85 to 95% of them would have no idea what I'm mm. saying. So let me briefly explain it. Basically what it is, is that, um, there's this belief in systematic theology that there are majors and minors. So there are major things that we need to focus on uh, for for Lutherans. That would, of course, be grace. That would be law and gospel. That would be um, Luther's small catechism, those kinds of things. And we would really focus on that uh, justification because I'm such, such out of the parlance. That would, of course, be the number word, mm-hmm. one word that people would use. Uh, and those would be the majors. Those would never fall into Adiaphora. Never, ever, ever. That would be heresy <laughs> in so Lutheran does, circles. Does that mean that those are the things that are worthy of spending time on teaching and not just te- well, teaching, but also these are the things we focus our religious expression on? Exactly. Okay. And our theological discussions. We really want to spend a lot of time on that and... Uh, Usually it's with weight. Like we want to put the weight on those things because they matter. Um, Everything else, and I'm sure any Lutheran listening might add more into those majors, whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, Adiaphora would be everything outside of that. So those things that you can be indifferent to and still be called a Lutheran. Uh, <laughs> my in, uh, I was going to say my entire religious movement would fall into the extraneous <laughs> category. Yeah, the Holy Spirit might actually, um, at least the way that you, you express the my Holy face Spirit. right now. <laughs> <laughs> the Holy Spirit uh, is the one that helps us see God's justification. Uh-huh. So. You know, it falls into that. But yeah, speaking in tongues, uh, some of that other stuff certainly would be within Adiaphora. And, uh, you know, it's just such a weird thing. Um, That's what it that's what it means. That's what systematic it's I'm fumbling around. This is a systematic theology uh, perception of how God works in the world. So it, it classifies things and then says some are really important and we need to spend all our time, energy, and effort into. And then others, hey, if you've got hobby time and you want to do that, sure, you can talk about... <laughs> if you've uh, got hobby time, you can talk to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I sure hope she's understanding. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what it is. Um, the reason I bring it up is Really, it's philosophical, so I might bore bore you and bore others. I'm not really all that interested in tearing down the idea of Adiaphora because I think I recognize there are some things that are well, a bit more important than others. And we all kind of use that idea somehow, whether we say that or call it that, right? right? We all focus on things to the detriment or ignoring of other things. Yeah, for me, the problem is twofold. One, philosophically... It's, uh, I think that this systematic look at things is um, naive. It is uh, too simplistic. I, I think of systematic theology more as an interconnected web. And so if you're going to be talking about one thing, it's going to have implications all around the web. And so, you know, we could chase down any of these. We can chase down uh, speaking in tongues and we finally eventually get to justification. 
So it's not. I'm sure <laughs> we could. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if we need to, um, but I think it's really. Uh, it does a disservice to others who believe differently than us. And that's like the second one. So because our theology is actually an interconnected web, that means that everything that we can talk about does matter. It just matters differently with whom you're talking. So, you know, the reason why, and it's so good that we landed on speaking in tongues, the reason why that matters is because folks like you believe that that's a thing. And we ought to be very careful not putting that into adiaphora because if we do that and we say, well, we're kind of indifferent to it, then we're kind of devaluing and demeaning and dehumanizing people who believe differently than we do. Hmm. And this becomes really pronounced in some of the things that we put into the category of adiaphora, <laughs> like social gospel would be a big oh, one. Um, poor people. <laughs> poor people, yeah. Um, uh, and, and, you know, outside of that, there are some things that rightly go into adiaphora like preaching styles and worship uh, instruments and stuff like carpet that. Carpet colors. Carpet colors. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. That's not even adding I mean, opera. We've got to convince nonsense. people of that. Yeah. But. <laughs> well, and I mean, like, I, I think, like I said, I think we all do this to an extent and there's nothing wrong with having a unique focus. Like part of the reason all these different religious groups and movements exist is because we do focus on some different things. And so, I mean, I, I, I get that. I think you, you said it can be detrimental in the sense that it, it it's um, harmful to others in whatever way that means. But it seems to me that, and I guess I'd apply this to you, but I would apply it to all of us is that, but it also is harmful to us in that we miss out on the tapestry like quality of faith mm -hmm. right yeah um doesn't mean you should i mean we're all gonna focus on something we're all gonna have a thing and that's fine but if everything that is not my thing goes in the uh the weird adiaphora bucket then then and that's a big bucket at some point then i think we are well we're losing out i think absolutely and you know i think they kind of go hand in hand because those that really focus on the non-Adiaphora stuff, they become more likely to be people who are radicalized. Mm. Um, more people are, are willing, uh, more of these folks are willing to be hardliners, whatever word you want to use. They're kind of those that really start to say bizarre things like Lutherans are the only Christians mm -hmm. or gosh, there are Lutherans in my church body who would hear this kind of podcast and would say that we're not Christians at all. Like, um, well, we already knew that about me. And, uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> true. Um, uh, and, and we don't even have to take an extreme like that there. I'm not kidding. There's like people who say, if you don't do the liturgy a certain way, you're not a Lutheran, you're not a Christian. And I think those that uh, really live into the system of Adiaphora versus the majors, as I called it, um, usually just justification in Lutheran circles. Um, they are not only more uh, likely to become those radicals, but then that also excludes more people. And mm -hmm. so it's both, right? So you, you harm yourself. And if you're a pastor, your congregation by focusing on these things alone, uh, 
And you miss the tapestry that, hey, these things actually do speak into people's lives in important ways. And we should talk about and them. And even if we ne- we may never do them ourselves, right? Right. Like, and that's fine. I, I mean, nobody could do everything and there's no reason that you should try. It's great and wonderful to have your own identities and distinctions and community values and all of that. But at the same time, like, uh, like I've learned an awful lot in my uh, theological migrations I've been on in my life, you know, from everybody I've spent time with. And I don't, I haven't adopted probably a lot of it, but for my own, you know, my own practice or my life, but I've still learned a lot. And some things I have, you know, like Mm -hmm. some perspectives I've really changed my mind on because I understand it in a way that I didn't before. Um, and so, yeah, like I, like I was going to say too, like, I think, there's always going to there are always going to be times when you're go- when you would use this and it would be a good thing because right now maybe we do need to focus on justification and that's fine so maybe that's what it is now and then but 2 years from now maybe like people's needs are not static um right. what i hope what god wants to say to us and do for us is not static um yeah. and so i think any of us who are too quick to um have tunnel vision in that theological tunnel vision in that way. I think we, it can be harmful for us and not to mention other people, but especially, I think, honestly, I think it's more harmful for us than it is. I mean, it is like you said, dehumanizing and, and condescending and it can be anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, I think it's more harmful to us because like, you know, if, a pastor in your church said that Pentecostals and everything in it is adiaphora. It'd be another one of those. Okay. You know? Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, I, I, I think maybe I'm repeating myself, but it's well, not I that there's no it. truth to it. It's just, we, we should be careful about how universally yeah. we apply it. I like your image at first of the tapestry. I also thought of the image of, uh, and this is not judgment if you're one of these people, but those folks that stay in their hometown their whole life mm-hmm. and, you know, for some people that works and they're wonderfully amazing, compassionate, loving people, but they are also missing out on what the rest of the world can show them and can yeah. teach them. And they, they miss out on the beauty. That's why I like the tapestry idea mm-hmm. of the difference in the world and how the world operates outside of your hometown. Yeah. Like to use an example, just because I'm a nerd and it's something I enjoy, I have part mostly over the pandemic, but a little before that too, I have really dove, dived headfirst into cooking international food, right? So, I mean, I have gone to Indian grocery stores to try and find things and I'm in the store asking, I don't know how to pronounce this Japanese word. Can you help me find it on the shelf? Right. And (laughs) Sometimes it's it's been challenging, but I also like for Indian food, for example, I had to buy half a damn spice rack, some of which I'd never heard of before. And it's been so much fun, though, because it's these flavor combinations and tastes Mm. that and textures that I never would have even dreamed of. And some of it I didn't really like, but some of it uh, like, where has this been all my life? You know, (laughs) Um, so I think I think any of you can find metaphors all day, but I, I think it's. 
we we all need a um, <laughs> we all need an Indian food approach to theology, <laughs> wherein you pour in the whole spice rack in every dish. <laughs> there you go. That's our new uh, motto. That's we'll right. start saying that theology is like Indian food. <laughs> well, and that's why we wanted to do an episode like this. Yeah, it gets some things off of our docket, but more importantly, it helps us see that all of these things are connected. All of them have some weight. All of them allow us to see God differently and more fully as well as each other in a more beautiful way than we had previously. And uh, yeah, that's kind of where we are with uh, these things. And who knows what will happen in the future. Um, If one of these really gravitated towards you, fantastic. Let us know. Well, and hopefully it is a an example of the kind of approach to theology and not just theology, but that's kind of where we focus a lot, but um, faith life that we are trying to say is what happens on the frontier, right? Is you're forced to do this kind of thing all the time. And we were all taught that that was a bad thing. You know, we were taught that the Indian food is too spicy and you shouldn't eat it when it turns out it can be wonderful. Okay, yeah. I'll stop. But I'm just saying <laughs> the point is like, hopefully, <clears throat> whether you care about any of these particular issues that we brought up today, I hope it's an example that can help you think, re-examine things that are more important in your own life right now, your own religious life or or not. But this idea that I really think the Christian life should be a constantly re-examined one. And we've all, all of us, at least in the conservative world, have gotten so far away from that. And I think we do ourselves a big disservice, not to mention opening up avenues for hurting people (laughs) when we we resist that re-examination, that wrestling, that tension, uh, the kinds of things we've talked about today. So there you go. There were answers to all of the questions you could ever ask. Um, No, Uh, I hope this was something a little different. So I hope that you enjoyed it. And if you did not, then I will still sleep tonight. Um, And I imagine Nate will too, although he's much more anxious than me. So he might, he, he stays up at night worrying about this sort of thing. And uh, anyway, if you have any feedback for us on this episode, these topics or something else, uh, send us an email and let us know. Um, FrontierFaithPodcast at gmail.com. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. What goes in your Audi offer bucket? (laughs) Uh, But seriously, though, I hope we can all kind of go forward with that idea of the constant reexamination. Not because nothing means anything, but because God, I think, always has new things to teach all of us. I hope that we're all always learning something. Um, Unless you all are a lot smarter than me, which some of you may be very much smarter than me, but I bet you still have things to learn (laughs) as well. So uh, in that process, I'm glad you're here with us and it will be okay. I promise it's going to be okay and, and God will take care of us. 